This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nan. For over 165 years, the world's most iconic and historic travel and map bookshop, Stanford's in London's Covent Garden, has delighted visitors with one of the world's largest collections of maps, globes and travel books, creating cartography for everyone from the British Army to James Bond. The lady at the helm now, Vivian Godfrey, is the granddaughter of the family who became involved a hundred years ago and joins us now on the Big Travel Podcast. The Stanford's business was founded by Edward Stanford in 1853 and his first shop was at the corner of Trafalgar Square and Whitehall. The address was a Charing Cross address, which is really what that street was called before it was called Trafalgar Square. After about a decade, he moved to a second premises, which is on the south side of Trafalgar Square. And in fact, you can see that building today, and it has some beautiful globes on the front of it. In 1901, he moved to the premises at number 12 to 14 Longacre. And at that point, the Stanford's business was as much, if not more so, a publisher of maps, not so much a retailer. And Stanford's really evolved into a retail business because the customers wanted to come and look at the maps. What was his inspiration, do you think? Because there was a lot of, it was first of all, primarily about map making, wasn't it? And map printing. Was he a cartographer? What was his interest in maps? Edward Stanford was a cartographer and had a great interest in in maps himself, and he joined an existing business as a young man. But after only, I think, two years, he decided to branch out on his own, and that's when the original Stanford's was founded in 1853. And there was, of course, in that era, an enormous uh, need for maps, because it was a great age of exploration. Many people were exploring different parts of the world and were relying again on the maps that Stanford produced. It was an immense time of exploration. Was everything mapped by that point or were they still creating new maps of destinations? Certainly everything was not mapped and even today everything is not mapped. And mapping, whether it be land-based mapping or producing charts, nautical charts for the oceans. In both instances, the land and the sea, uh, things are constantly changing. Maps and charts are things that evolve and that you need to purchase new ones for because of changes. These days, people are going on holiday and exploring different places each year. And perhaps in the past, either because people were less adventurous or because they had uh, less disposable income, you might go back to the same place on holiday each year. And so 
the same map might perhaps last you for a couple or three years and there wouldn't be too many changes in that time and perhaps the travel book would last you that period of time as well. These days we're finding more and more people have the inclination and the time and the money to be able to go to different places and so that's really wonderful for people who publish travel books, people who write travel books, people who make maps. There is a demand from our customers to go to different places each year and need the, the books and the maps to take them there. And travel has changed incredibly since 1853 with people, I guess people were still doing their grand tours at that time, weren't they, until the yes. 20s possibly? Yes, one might argue that the grand tour continues today, although there are certain nationalities that I think take the Grand Tour more seriously than British people do. I myself really was lucky enough to do a, some Grand Touring, if you like, uh, with a rucksack and, and different parts of the world. But I'm always very impressed when I particularly meet Australians and New Zealanders. Those nationalities are very fond of taking off a year and they will come, they will travel around Europe, they'll travel around the Americas, and they still are doing the Grand Tour. Maybe not in quite the same style as in 1853, but with the same intention. It is a huge tra tradition, that sort of going travelling. And I don't know, it takes a lot of money. And I myself couldn't afford to do the going travelling. I've travelled the world since, but going travelling specifically when you're 18 or when you've just finished university, you know, one of those sort of gap years you take. It's a really expensive thing to do, but it is such a valuable thing to do. So I, I do hope that people are continuing, like you said, to do that. It is. And I think that, uh, I mean, I as uh, have been lucky enough to backpack around Europe, go interrailing. I then travel for three months on my own in Southeast Asia and all around Australia. But everything I did uh, with a backpack and mostly traveling on buses and actually living on very little. So in Australia, I mostly stayed in youth hostels. I had a couple of very odd experiences. The first one was I stayed at a youth hostel somewhere a little north of the Gold Coast. I couldn't get a room, but they said that I could sleep outside. So I sort of made a little camp underneath a tree and all I had to eat was some bread and bananas. And perhaps foolishly, I left out my loaf of bread and I, I went somewhere for a, for a short while, perhaps to take a shower. And I came back and a wombat had gone into my loaf of bread and had eaten all the way through the center of the loaf of bread. So really all I had left to eat was a banana. But I, I seem to recall some of the other backpackers at the hostel took pity on me and gave me something to eat. That's the nice thing about those. I mean, I've never had my dinner eaten by a wombat, but I have had it eaten by other people actually in, in places where, you know, you go and there's immense poverty and you'll go to a beach shack and eat something on the beach. I remember this happening particularly in Cambodia. A, I was sitting having something to eat in a beach shack and the, the table was on the sand. And after I'd finished, a man came up, shuffled up to the table. He had no arms and no legs and something you see quite often, unfortunately, in Cambodia. And he said, you know, sort of indicated that he wanted to finish what I'd left. And so he did, he, he finished, you know, I sort of wiped my knife and fork for him and he managed perfectly well with them and finished my leftovers. And then about 10 minutes later, two very young children came past and they scraped the bones, the fish bones and everything like that. They scraped it into a plastic bag to use for, I have no, no idea what they were going to use it for, stock or animal feed or, or whatever, I don't know. 
And those sort of traveling experiences. I, I really agree, and I had a similar experience when I went for the first time to Bali. That was part of my backpacking for three months around Asia, and I I remember vividly being the owner of the very first edition of、um, Southeast Asia on a Shoestring, possibly the earliest Lonely Planet publication. Anyway, I went to Bali in 1981 with my backpack, and I trundled around, and I also distinctly remember sitting on a bench. And the grounds of a temple, I believe, and a severely disabled woman came up, and I shared my my food with her. I didn't have very much, but she had nothing. So yes, I think those experiences, and I was lucky enough to have the support at home. But the the other way that people, young people, are able to travel these days is, you know, with the opportunity to pick up work where they're traveling. Especially if they're multilingual or at least bilingual, and it really, really helps if you do speak some foreign languages, because then if you have to, you can potentially get a job to make ends meet while you're travelling. Now I've got onto your travels, which I did want to talk about, obviously, but I've got onto your travels too soon because I just want to go back to the shop first of all. Yes, we've got a few of your travels, which is wonderful. So you're a descendant of the Stanford family. No, actually, I'm not a descendant of the Stanford's family. So、um, Edward Stanford started the business in 1853. And then fast forward to 1946, and、uh, I think by then we were on to about the fourth, third, or fourth generation of the Stanford family, and most of them were were very involved in the military, and they were dedicated to their military careers, and they weren't very interested in continuing the business. So, 1946, the George Philip Group purchased Stanford's, and the George Philip Group was also in the business of producing maps and atlases. And textbooks, and so how does my family get involved? Well, in 1919, my grandfather Ernest Gordon Godfrey, he served in the First World War, and then after leaving the army, he joined the George Philip Group, and he worked his entire career for the company. At one point,、uh, becoming the chairman of Stanford's, which was operated as a separate division. Then, in 1949, my father Patrick Godfrey joined. The George Philip Group, and he also、uh, worked his entire career for for the company. And like my grandfather, at some point he rose up to become chairman of Stanford's. So I'm following in the footsteps of my family, who have been involved with the company. It'll be a hundred years next year that my grandfather joined the company. So it's it's very meaningful and very special to me. So at this point. My brother Joe Godfrey and I are the majority shareholders of the business, but there are seventy other shareholders, including members of the Stanford's family. So there's a multitude of families that have been involved in the business over the generations. What do you remember about going to the shop when you were a little girl? I remember primarily going to the George Philip Print Works in Victoria Road. And so the George Philip business was much bigger than Stanford's, and they had these huge printing presses, and they also had a globe-making works. And it was fascinating. You watch globes that were formed in half spheres, and they would come along a little ceiling-mounted conveyor belt, and the ladies would then stick them together, and then they would cut out the pieces of paper with the map printed on on it. And they would apply that to the spheres to form a globe. So that's one of my earliest memories. But then the headquarters of the George Philip Group moved to the Stanford's building when I was about ten years old. And so I started visiting the shop、uh, from about the age of ten. And I was first allowed to work there when I was sixteen. 
I was given a summer holiday job in the basement. And I wasn't, of course, allowed to speak to any customers. But my job was to pick different ordnance survey maps for people's orders and then box them up and they got sent out in the post. The basement at the time was this sort of very grimy and filled with map chests and filled with lots of military maps. To me, it really is a magical place. Did you feel that magic? I do agree with you. Stanford's is a magical place and I do feel the magic. I felt the magic at the time. I feel the magic now. For people who haven't been there, describe it to me. What makes it magical? There are two things that make Stanford's magical. I think it's the, first of all, it's the stock that we carry. So we have an incredible array of merchandise, the largest selection of globes in one place in the world, giant floor standing globes. We have illuminated globes. We have little desktop globes. Um, we have globes that look like they were built in the 1500s. And then we have very modern looking globes. So we have a huge giant selection of globes. But then I think it's our paper maps that is really incredible. You can go in and watch customers um, and they will pull the maps out of the cases and then they'll spread them out on the floor. Uh, there was just somebody this morning, when I came down to meet you this morning at the shop, there was a gentleman in the Italian section and he had taken three or four maps out and they were sort of spread around him on the floor. And you could tell that he was envisaging his trip to Italy. And I don't know if he was going to walk or he was going to bicycle, but he had all these maps spread out around him and he'd taken his, his cagoule off and that was on the floor and he had his rucksack next to him and he was clearly contemplating his trip. So that's really, that is the magical thing about Stanford's is seeing the customers planning their amazing trip of a lifetime uh, and coming into Stanford's and being able to do that. It's a place that makes you dream as well, doesn't it? Even if you're not going somewhere, you can go there and see the thousands and thousands of books and maps and the globes and dream about travel. Yes, you can. And we have maps on the floor and we have a giant picture of the solar system on the ceiling. And one of the questions our customers have been asking us is when you move, will you have maps on the floor in the new shop? And the answer is yes, we will definitely have maps on the floor in the new shop. So the, the current shop, which is soon going to be the old shop, has been there since 1901. Stanford's have been there since 1901. You must have seen some challenging times in that time. Did I hear that it was bombed during the war? Yes, the building took a direct hit during the war. And because maps are kept in giant stacks, these stacks of paper actually quite resistant to burning. And so they cushioned the blast and they also meant that the fire didn't hold very quickly. So for many years after the war, Stanford's was still selling maps with slightly charred edges, uh, but the customers didn't seem to mind. Was anyone in the building at the time? There were people in the building at the time, but I don't believe that anyone was killed or injured. So I imagine new technologies have made a difference to your business as well. We have a huge selection of land maps that can be printed on demand to almost any scale and on different types of materials, and they can be site-centered. So let's imagine that you'd like to have an Ordnance Survey map printed with your house right in the middle of it. Uh, we can do that for you to almost any scale. We can do the same with nautical charts. We can't site-centre the nautical charts, but now that Stanford's is um, the only British Admiralty agent in London, and we're an agent for the French Hydrographic Office, the Canadian Hydrographic Service, and the US government, we can print 
any type of nautical chart for anywhere in the world that you might need. So we don't have to keep it in stock. We don't need the space to keep it. I actually have a map, a Stanford's map on my wall where my house is, but it's from 1890 something in Blackheath in southeast London. And my house wasn't there. And I love it. I love looking at this lovely old map and seeing seeing where the roads have actually formed, you know, seeing the little paths and, you know, seeing where the little stream was. And you can see where the, the big roads have now followed those old little little lanes. And that's the beauty is you still, I imagine, have this archive of lovely old maps. We do have an amazing archive and uh, most of the archive physically is kept at the Royal Geographical Society. So we have a wonderful relationship with the RGS. They help look after it in a proper air-conditioned, climate-controlled environment. And obviously they have people who are very knowledgeable who can curate it. And we are looking at opportunities to take advantage of the archive and print it and commercialize it. And we're starting to produce things like jigsaw puzzles of some of our old archival material. But really importantly, as a result of the move, we've uncovered uh, some new artifacts, new things from our archive, and we've decided we're going to mount an exhibition of the Stanford's archive. And I'm happy to report that our new landlords, the Mercer's Company, one of the great city livery companies, they have offered to provide us space on their Covent Garden estate at no charge to allow us to mount the exhibition, which will be free to anyone who wants to come and see it. So we're planning to open the exhibition sometime in 2019, hopefully the spring, and we're going to have various themes, but it will focus on the Stanford's archive. And I also believe that the British Library is going to support us and they're going to help us find archival material, not necessarily from the Stanford's archive, but also from theirs, so that we can talk to people who visit, particularly young people, particularly children, about the importance of mapping and the role that mapping has played over, over history. Well, I'll certainly come along to that. So there you are at 16 years of age working in the basement. Did you get the travel bug from being in the shop? No, I think I got the travel bug long before that. Uh, my grandfather, Ernest Gordon Godfrey, studied geography at Oxford University, as did my mum and my dad and myself. So I come from a family of geographers. My house and my grandparents' house was filled with maps and books and atlases and globes. And um, in fact, I distinctly remember my father had a wonderful globe that sat in his study. And I think it was held up by Atlas. So there's this sort of statue of Atlas holding up a globe. But everywhere you looked in our house, there were maps and atlases and so on. So I think the bug started very early on when I was a child. And because my mother was a geography teacher, every time we went on holiday, there would be something that she would want to go and investigate. So we would quite often go to the north of France on holidays. And I remember that she wanted to go and look at a um, tidally driven power station. So there's, there's a power station in the north of France that is driven by the tides that move up and down an estuary there and generate tidal power. And she really, really wanted to go and see it so she could somehow incorporate it into a geography lesson when she, when she got back to school after the summer holidays were over. That was, must have been quite unusual in your mum's generation to be studying at Oxford and doing geography, to be a, a woman a woman there that unfortunately females were in the minority. She was very much in the minority. She went to Oxford and attended what was then called the Society for Home Students, which then became St Anne's College. She was lucky. She came from a background with a dad, my 
My maternal grandfather, Samuel Brassington, was a headmaster of a primary school just outside Manchester. So my dad's family came from Kent and my mum's family came from Manchester. I think the fact that my grandfather was a um, primary school headmaster meant that his two daughters, so my mum my had an elder sister who also attended Oxford University, and I think because their father, you know, really encouraged them. And my mother tells me that my dad thinks that he met her at university, but they only overlapped at Oxford by a year. And my mum thinks that they didn't meet there, and my dad thinks that they did meet there. So anyway, where does, it, where does she think that she's probably right? Where does she, she think thinks they met? that they met actually in in London. I don't know where, but they got married at Chelsea Old Church. They both became very much Londoners, and I grew up on the edge of London and um, really, you know, love being a Londoner. And it's actually somewhat to my regret that I've spent the last 25 years living in the United States. Um, I was going to ask you about that, because you actually commute here from Fort Lauderdale, which is quite impressive. Yes, it's a, it's a bit of a strange story. But after I graduated from Oxford University from St. Anne's College, the same college as my mum, I joined McKinsey and Company uh, in their London office. So after a number of years with McKinsey, I joined Diageo. They invited me to move to Minneapolis. Are they the drinks people? They are the drinks people. But at the time, they owned a number of businesses in the United States. They owned the Pillsbury Company, Burger King in Miami. They owned uh, the Pearl Optical Business in Dallas. So they had a variety of different businesses. And I went out to Minneapolis and stayed. I married an American and uh, he had a great love of boating. And when we saw a business for sale in Fort Lauderdale, we decided to leave our corporate jobs and we bought a sort of middling sized uh, business in the year 2000 in Fort Lauderdale and we moved there and we have grown that business and we've changed its focus from just being focused on leisure boaters to a real emphasis on super yachts. So we sell all types of navigational and safety products to super yachts. That's incredible. How do you manage running a thriving super yacht boating business in Fort Lauderdale and being the CEO of Stanford? First of all, I'm very lucky to have a husband who is very understanding and is perfectly capable of running the business without me. We also have an amazing staff. We've owned and run that business now for, for nearly 20 years. So we have a very experienced staff. So they can manage without me for most of the time. There's a few things that I, that I help try and give input on. And so last October, our managing director of five years, Tony Marr, resigned from Stanford. So at that point, I was the non-executive chairman and I was only coming here for a week every couple of months. But when Tony resigned, I decided that I would need to rent a flat here in Covent Garden, which I did, and started to come here an increasing amount. So from the early part of this year, I've been coming gradually more. And it's now at the point where I'm really here virtually full time. And I will be here really full time until we have moved. And then I'm going to need to decide if I want to continue this rather strange commuting thing. I do love having a flat that I'm renting here in Covent Garden. It's such a vibrant, exciting part of London. And it's been the home of Stanford's for 165 years. So why, you know, why, what's not to like about that? For people who don't know it, and many people do know it, what describe Covent Garden to me? Well, Covent Garden, I think, derives its energy from the central market. 
the name comes from the, the words convent garden. So years and years ago, there was a convent in Covent Garden, and they had a garden, and they grew the, they grew vegetables, uh, fruits and vegetables. And then over the years, they, they, they would sell those in order to derive an income, and it gradually turned into a great trading fruit and vegetable market. And a beautiful set of buildings were constructed for the traders to be able to sell their fruits and vegetables. And that continued until the 1970s. In the 1970s, a plan was created to tear down the market buildings. And at that moment, the Covent Garden Community Association was founded by community activists. And they pretty much single-handedly were responsible for the Covent Garden uh, market buildings not being torn down. Thank goodness for that, because if the Covent Garden Community Association hadn't come into being and hadn't campaigned so effectively, we would not have what is the thriving heart of this very exciting part of London. So uh, you've got these lovely old market buildings that span three floors. There are some wonderful shops and restaurants to visit, and it's an amazing eclectic mixture of uh, retailers, restaurants, and market stalls. There are also lots of live entertainers. Uh, so at any time of the day, you can come and there are people playing live music and comedians and jugglers and, and all sorts. And you are based, at Stanford's is based in Covent Garden and the new shop is going to actually be closer to Covent Garden and the beautiful network of streets that I've been working or living in London for 20 years now and I always get lost when I'm looking for something here. I've been to Stanford's maybe 10 times, possibly more. And still this morning when I was looking for it, I was like, now where am I down these roads? But it, that's the wonderful thing about being here. Unless you're in a hurry, you can amble around. You it know. is, and I would say it's getting better, actually. Areas of Covent Garden that can be turned into pedestrian areas are being turned into pedestrian areas. So we're very excited, for example, that there's the um, St. Martin's Courtyard that is a wonderful pedestrianised area. And then now uh, Mercer Walk, where the new Stanford shop will be, is another beautiful pedestrian area that will link into St. Martin's Courtyard. And then very excitingly, quite soon, the Mercer's company is going to be redeveloping the old Brewer's Yard. And that will become a further pedestrian area that will link into Mercer Walk. So there'll be a three-block pedestrian walk-through area that will just add to the vitality of the Covent Garden area. We've talked about your Covent Garden life. What's your Fort Lauderdale life like? Are you sailors as well? My husband is a sailor. I am not. Regrettably, I get hideously seasick. So I focus on lots of outdoor activities. I love running. I love walking. I love playing golf. I mean, one of my favourite activities is to go and run, run at the beach. I love swimming. I swim every morning, which I do, by the way, here in London. I belong to the Oasis, and the Oasis is this wonderful indoor and outdoor swimming pool complex right in the heart of London. So at 6.30 every morning I'm there swimming. Because Fort Lauderdale is on the east coast of Florida, it's really the sunrises that are amazing. So when you get down to the beach early in the morning, you can see the sunrise. Often, I, th I think it might be because the islands of the Bahamas are due east of Fort Lauderdale. And so often you'll see these lovely puffy cumulus clouds building over the Bahamas Islands, which you can't see from the beach, but you can see the clouds coming up. And it lends an absolutely amazing effect 
to the sunrise in Fort Lauderdale. And there's lots of palm trees along the beach there. It has a beautiful uh, sort of boardwalk along by the beach, uh, which you can run along, and then you can walk back along the sand. And when you're very hot, you can then dive into the ocean. Where particularly has stood out? What's been the best bit about your travels? I would say in the last few years, the place I've enjoyed the most was visiting the Galapagos. Actually, not just the Galapagos, but also visiting Quito in Ecuador. So the Galapagos Islands are part of the nation of Ecuador because it sits on the equator. And Quito is a World Heritage City, and it has some spectacular buildings to visit, particularly some of its churches, but, but other buildings also. I really enjoyed visiting Quito and then spent about five days in the Galapagos and really the only way to see the Galapagos is on, is on a boat. Uh, so we were on a, a, a boat that had about um, 70 passengers. They don't allow large cruise ships there. So the other thing that's amazing about the Galapagos is that the only people who are allowed to be guides there must be properly trained and registered with the Ecuadorian government. And so that means that the people who are guiding you are particularly well qualified, are extremely knowledgeable about the ecosystem of the Galapagos Islands and the animals, the reptiles, the birds. And so that, I think, combines with the, the beautiful country that it is, along with their knowledge, makes it a particularly memorable visit. And then, of course, if you go on a boat, you're going to be in the water a lot. So you're going to put your mask and your snorkels and your flipper, flippers on and you're going to swim with seals and turtles and fish and have an absolutely amazing time. I'd really love to go and my children really want to go because they're massive wildlife fans. So that is definitely on the list when they can. Um, what have I missed? What have been your other travel standout moments? Somebody who was asking me what, what would be my next dream trip. And I said that actually I enjoy going to places that are cold, uh, which is probably why I didn't mind living in Minneapolis, Minnesota for nine years. But uh, what I'd really like to do is to travel around the coastline of Norway. And I've heard that, that you can travel through the fjords with the, with the post office boat. So there's some sort of Norwegian post office boat that allows you to, to pop in and out of the fjords. I really, really would love to do that. And in addition, I'm very interested in Scandinavian cuisine and the fact that they've built a real tradition around foraging. So a sort of dream trip would be to take the post boat and then find a beautiful beach, go and do some foraging, build a nice little fire, and then create a delicious meal on the beach in the sort of style of a New England clam bake. Actually, I've done that once before in Fiji. When my boyfriend and I went around the world with backpacking, we spent three nights on a desert island owned by the Methodist Church in Fiji, and uh, they take you out on a little boat and drop you off. And you, you, if you're sensible, you take some food and water with you. And uh, we fished for fish. And then we built a little fire of stones and we buried the fish on the hot stones and we cooked our fish like that. So anyway, but, but yes, the Did trip you like to... Fiji? My family is from Fiji. My, my dad's family is from Fiji. Oh, so really? I've been several times. Uh, I loved Fiji. Really, really enjoyed. Spent about 10 days there tried to spend as much time as possible in the remoter islands. We flew into Suva, which I think is the only international airport there. Uh, you'd have flown into Nandi. Nandi, there yes, we go. There. And then we, we tried to travel to the more obscure islands. And as I said, we, we were able to spend three nights on a completely desert island that was very small. Really enjoyed it, uh, enjoyed meeting the people there. So your, your travels have been backpacking. And then have you travelled a lot with work? I have travelled a lot with work. Uh, one in particular I remember was we 
helped Roundtree Macintosh when they were facing a hostile takeover bid from Nestle. So I got to visit all of the different Roundtree confectionery factories around Europe, and that was absolutely wonderful. Did you get um, loads of free sweets? Loads of free sweets. That was great. And then I went on to, to be the worldwide brand champion for Haagen-Dazs oh, ice cream. Nice. So that was, uh, that was amazing. I got to travel a lot doing that. And, and then I went on to, to be the head of Haagen-Dazs in North America, based in Minneapolis for four years. So, but I got to travel a great deal in, in the United States. So after all this, is this when you've come back to Stanford's then? After all this, yes, sounds like a very a stellar career in the corporate world. You you returned to Stanford's. That's exactly right, and I returned to Stanford's because I felt that it was the moment when Stanford's needed me. I've been a shareholder since I was in my twenties. My father gave my brother and I some shares when we were in our twenties. So both Joe and I have been shareholders for several decades have not been on the board and were not greatly involved until the last few years. What's your emotional involvement with the shop? Very strong, very mixed emotions. I mean, I am a passionate believer that Stanford's is a great brand and has the opportunity to continue to grow. But at the same time, when things go slightly wrong, I also, it can be very upsetting. So very different emotions, the, the, the positive, but, but also the, the feeling concerned. You take things to heart. I take things very much to heart. Do you walk in there and feel the history and feel your family's history as well? I do, because every day I look upstairs to the fourth floor where my father had his office. And I remember the times when I would come as a child. So yes, it's got, a, it's got my whole family history there. My last question is about music. I always ask a question about music because I feel that music and travel go hand in hand. And if you had to select one piece of music that reminded you of a magical or memorable moment of travel, what would that song be and why? It would definitely be Jimmy Buffett's Volcano. I listened to that song more times than I can remember when in 1979, I did a Trek America, a sort of little minivan holiday across the United States. And our chap who was our guide played that song almost continuously. He had a, he had a little tape deck in the van and as we trundled across the United States he, he played Jimmy Buffett almost constantly but that particular track he played all the time so that is my favorite traveling track and by the way Jimmy Buffett is a customer of my business in Fort Lauderdale so I'm particularly fond of Jimmy Buffett and his songs. Being in the United States for the first time and uh, traveling all around the US I mean I, I really I went from coast to coast and after that Trek America thing, I then backpacked my way back using buses. It just makes me think of traveling across the United States. An iconic American musician like Jimmy Buffett sort of sums it all up. Thank you so much, Vivian, for that wonderful insight into one of the world's oldest and best purveyors of all things travel. Next week, we will have Tom Hall, who is the founder of the Lonely Planet Guidebook. So, Travel all the way. We'll see you then.